For those who were not here last week, uh, we are covering a Christmas family tree uh, for this season of Advent, and we examined the two genealogies listed in Matthew and in Luke, discussed the differences and who their target audiences were. Uh, we began with Abraham being told to go to the land of Canaan from Ur and where God made his first covenant and promised him a lineage, a nation, and descendants. Uh, we discussed how that passed through Isaac as opposed to Ishmael and Jacob as opposed to Esau. We're going to pick up today again with uh, Jacob and just to give a run-up, we will be covering several centuries of history today. Um, my father, being a historian by trade, would prob he's probably going to kick me for covering so much territory without much explanation, but time is short. We've only got, we've only got a couple of more weeks to get through this. So. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, just to tee it up to where we are, uh, Jacob has received his vision and he has been promised by God that he will have many descendants equivalent to all the grains of sand on the earth. And he has, of course, been forced to flee. Uh, his mother, Rebecca, has advised him to do that to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. He goes to his uncle Laban, who promises him for seven years of work, of service, you can marry my daughter Rachel, whom Jacob loves. Jacob does the seven years of service, and lo and behold, who's the bride? Leah. Is Leah. So Jacob has been deceived. Um, he probably may have been thinking, what goes around comes around. What was I thinking when I did that? But at any rate, he works another seven years for Laban and marries Rachel. And in the process, by being very crafty, very cagey, he gets even with his uncle. Um, we've probably all heard the phrase, never try to con a con man. Well, I, I think that's totally applicable to Jacob. Um, Jacob walks away with the vast majority of Laban's wealth and possessions uh, just through, as I said, sheer manipulation, you might call it, but it was probably justified. But at any rate, Jacob and his two wives have their sons, and as we are all probably fully aware, Jacob makes a big mistake when it comes to parenthood. What's his big mistake? He shows preferential treatment to one of his children openly. Huge, huge mistake. And, of course, we're all familiar that favorite son is Joseph. Joseph steals the show from the rest of Genesis, pretty much from this part of Genesis till the end of it, up till the last chapter where he dies. But as we're all aware, uh, Jacob bestows the coat of many colors on Joseph, and his brothers, when the opportunity presents itself, decide to retaliate and take their envy out on Joseph. We know what happens. They initially decide to kill him, but one of them, Reuben, intervenes and says, no, let's cast him into the cistern. And uh, Reuben intends to rescue Joseph when tempers have 
gone down a little bit. But he doesn't get the chance. Uh, some Ishmaelites uh, come by, and the remaining brothers decide to sell Joseph into slavery. And Joseph goes to Egypt, gains power, and saves the nation of Egypt from starvation. But the famine does uh, extend to Canaan, and of course his brothers come, not realizing who he is. And at any rate... If somebody would uh, just say, let me just start with Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Just say, got it, if you want to read it. Got it. Okay. If I could, I've been asked for the sake of the podcast. Uh, okay. You're saying this for perpetuity now, mind you. <laughs> for the record. But if uh, give everybody a minute to get there. For the record. Tell me when. Okay. Are we all there? Okay. If you would. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He swooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, thank you. Okay. At this scene here, Jacob has come to Egypt and he has been reunited uh, with Joseph, much to his joy. And uh, Joseph has, of course, identified himself to his brothers and let it be known who he is and said, you know, you had a plan for evil, but God had a plan for good. And I was sent here to save you and the entire nation, the entire nation of Egypt. So, at any rate, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he is prophesizing, of course, to his sons. And, of course, there are 12 sons. And looking at this uh, prophecy with Judah, um, any initial thoughts, any, anything jump out with respect to what's said? Nancy. Okay. Yep. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet. Of course, scepter, the symbol of royalty. Um, what else? Yes. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. The donkey's coat is the one that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Maybe. Maybe. I'd, I'd not thought of that. Huh. So. 
then it's another answer, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. We don't know. This, this okay. is, that's the beauty of... The choice vine, of course, refers to Jesus. Yes, I'm the vine. Washing his yeah. Going with, I'm the vine. But anything else? Yes. There may be a much bigger picture going on with that than, than meets the eye. I want to uh, throw this question out here. Um, we've got Jacob has 12 sons. Why does it seem as though the covenant is going to pass through Judah as opposed to the remaining 11? We may have to think a little bit here. Like I said, we don't, we don't know for sure. I'm, I can't stand up here and say I'm going to speak for God on this. Uh, I do have possibly some ideas, but why not Reuben? Why not Levi? Why not Benjamin? Benjamin was the other favorite son of Jacob. Well, Reuben had disqualified himself, and maybe the others didn't show the qualities of leadership mm-hmm. or whatever quality God was looking for to pass the blessing. Okay. Well, in, in here, of course, less Reuben disgraced Jacob sexually. And he says, Simeon and Levi, you men are, you are violent men. There's no way. You know, you'll, he actually says to leave them, you're not going to have a patch of land, basically. The Levites, of course, didn't. Simeon was encircled by Judah. They were totally dependent upon the Judeans. Uh, but th- like I said, those three are explicitly mentioned why. You know, they, they will stand, for lack of a better word, cursed. But again, why, why is this going through to Judah? Yes? He did. He was the one who said, let's sell him into slavery. Now, but now, think about that. You've become slave trader. That's not exactly... Exactly, yeah. It'd probably be detrimental if you put that on a resume that you had engaged in slave trading. But think about going back to this when his brothers come to him, Joseph tests his brothers. Again, they don't realize who he is. What do, what do we know about Judah? Think about it. Judah's the one who makes the arrangements when it comes to Benjamin and everything else. He's the one who takes the lead on that. The rest don't. Did, did you want to say something? No, I'm just saying that he's showing greater leadership skills. Than yes. Him. Oftentimes Judah is the one who does take the role of leader and amongst his brethren. He says, take me, take me, I'll take, I'll stay in his place. Yes. Judah's willing to sacrifice. He says, I, I can't let the youngest of us have this kind of, put this youngest of us in this kind of danger. So I will stay in, I will. He also knew that Benjamin was the next best favorite. Yes, exactly. So Judah does, just, does take the lead on some things. Uh Whereas the rest of them are kind of kind of there. 
You know, but at any rate, I think this is a very important passage of Scripture when it comes to uh, discussing the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, this was actually the passage of Scripture last Sunday uh, in worship. Um, Dr. Fuller did consult with me on this so that we could make sure that this matched up, but he beat me by one week. So I'm, I'm going to have to have a talk. I'm, I'm probably not going to have a talk with him given what's going on. But, uh, but yes, this, if you were here last week, this was the, uh, the Bible verse that was read um, at worship service. So at any rate, uh, Judah is the one. He, he is the lion's club, the lion's cub. Uh, as far as I know, I think that's the first reference to lion um, with respect uh, to where we're going with this. I, I believe that is the first time it's referenced, you know, the lion of Judah. So, but at any rate, uh, we're going to jump ahead here uh, by about 400 years. And what's happened? The Israelites have stayed in Egypt 400 years. They have been placed into bondage. Um, they have cried up to the Lord finally. God has heard their cry. God has remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is going to deliver them out of the land of Egypt and back into the Holy Land. Uh, as we all know, it's not an easy process. There are many stumbling blocks along the way, but... The exodus has occurred. Um, the Israelites have been forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years due to their unfaithfulness, not trusting God. I've, I've always found that just fascinating when the, 12, when the spies are sent into the land of Canaan and Joshua and Caleb and says, yes, we can do this. The Lord is on our side. And they're like, no, we can't do it. And God just says, all right, you're not going to have faith in me. We won't go right now. We will wait 40 years. And nobody over the age of 20 is going in, except Joshua and Caleb. But during the time in the wilderness, it's actually quite shocking, some of the commandments God lays down to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. When you go in, there will be nothing left where you march. You will slay the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, all of them. They're so wicked their culture cannot be redeemed, you are going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And, of course, Moses dies. God has said, you will, I will let you see the promised land, but you will not enter it. Of course, during the wilderness, Moses loses his temper and loses his faith for a split second, which costs him the ability to enter the promised land. Um, but, at any rate, Joshua has been appointed the leader of the Israelites. They have crossed the River Jordan, and we are now on the outsets, outside of Jericho. And another person who is coming up, who is listed in Matthew's genealogy, not Luke's, uh, but that is Rahab. With Joshua 2, verses 18. Um, any volunteer, Tom, do you want to read? Let me, let me, let me. Let me follow your suggestion here. My bright idea. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof, that was Rahab, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land to you that a great 
and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and that what you did to Sihon and to Og, the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because you, for the Lord your God, is God of heaven above and earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my family, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. That's for oh, one more, sorry. I, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell where we are going, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Just opening this up here, what do we know about Rahab? What is she? She's a harlot. But a business harlot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Can you please repeat that? So yes, is uh, Rahab, is she, is she a Jew? What is she? She's a Canaanite. Does anybody find this unusual here that God has commanded, you, know, you, you will leave nobody behind. I mean, there will be nothing left. These cultures are engaged in child sacrifice. And also, I mean, they are committing all sorts of sins here. Do you think maybe that these spies are making a pact that they're, they don't have the legal authority to make? You think maybe they're disobeying God? But what is she doing here? Mm-hmm. 
She's throwing herself at the mercy of the court here. She's throwing herself to God's mercy at this point. So, in a way, you can say she has redeemed herself through the most dire circumstances. And, of course, sometimes that's what it takes. But, as we all know, she does save the spies. She hides them. She denies knowing about them. She says, well, they came and left. I don't know where they've gone. And she allows them to escape. And... The, uh, she is commanded place a red you know, cloth around you know, over your window so we know where you are and not to let it go. What is, what is that symbolic of? Does, it, does anybody find that symbolic of something that's... The blood on the doors. Yes, Passover. Very symbolic of that, I think. So, but at any rate, Jericho falls and... Uh, the only thing that is left standing is Rahab's tower slash apartment. Uh, going on to uh, Joshua six twenty two through twenty five. Any volunteers to read that? Do I need to pick a victim here? <laughs> okay, give me give me one second here. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of it and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young man, the young man who, had, who had been spies went in and brought Rahab out along with her father, her mother, and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought all her kindred out and set them outside the camp of Israel. They burned down the city and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and irons they, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy on Jericho. Thank you. Through this passage, do we see the uh, spies' promise being fulfilled. What about that's happened? That's now happening to Rahab. What is what is happening here that so far is pretty unique with respect to the aftermath? She's adopted into the. She's taken in. She and her family are taken in. Yes. And it's not just her, it's her family as she mm-hmm. asked. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Yeah. I just wonder if this redeemed her to her, uh, what her family think of her being a professional harlot. And uh, suddenly she uh, makes sure that they're all safe. So uh, that's a, an aspect of it. 
Well, as we've already kind of seen here, um, this will not be the first time, God will choose some people who have a past, sometimes a dubious past. I mean, think about this right. We have talked about a swindler named Jacob, and we have talked about a slave trader named Judah, and now we're talking about a harlot named Rahab. So, so, and we're about to, later on this morning, we're going to talk about a murderer named David. So God chooses people for different reasons. We don't know why he chooses certain people. Says, I have no idea why he chose Judah over Reuben or any of the others. As I said, Reuben had every intention of rescuing Joseph. He wasn't able to. But he did some other things on the line where God said, nope, it's, it's not going to go to him. But as I said... But any other, any other thoughts here? Anything that strikes you about Rahab and how she fits in to this genealogy? How, how peculiar it might be? Because she, she is quite different. She is, you know, again, not a Jew. And yes? Really? Yep. Let me make sure I didn't. And she has lived in Israel to this day. So, yeah, I put them outside. The, you're right. I'd I'd not noticed that. They put she was put outside the camp. She wasn't in it. But she and her family do did end up living in Israel. Maybe maybe not within the inner circle, but. At any rate, well, um, Rahab has a son named Boaz, and who is Boaz's wife? Ruth. Ruth is a. It's a very small book in the Bible, but it, I, don't you find it interesting? This one woman has a whole book about herself. Does that incline you to think that maybe she has some importance? That maybe she's, she's a little bit of a, uh, she might be a significant figure. Um, turning to uh, Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 16 through 18, uh, just to build up to this, um, begins with Naomi. And Naomi is from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, which is of the house of Joseph. And she has lost her husbands and she has lost both of her sons. She has retained her two daughter-in-laws. Um, and she's very sad. Ruth is, as I'm, you probably are aware, Ruth is a story about loyalty. Um, that, that's the key theme, I think, of the book of Ruth. But at any rate, uh, Ruth is, or Naomi is, Dismissing her two daughter-in-laws, one goes, but Ruth stays. She, re does not, she decides not to leave Naomi. Uh, Ruth uh, 1, chapters 16 through 18. Do I have a whole? Okay. Okay. I'll get you, you. I'll have you for the next one then. Okay. So a little note on this. Tom read this at Robert's wedding. 
But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Thank you. Ruth, like Rahab, is not a Jew. She is a Gentile. She is a Moabite. And looking at this, this passage here, does anything jump out to anybody? Anything? I know it's a short one, but I, I do think there is something that she says that's, which is pretty remarkable. Okay. So like Rahab, she's saying, you know, I'm... I'm turning my, my life over to the God of Israel. What else? Your people shall be my people. Okay. Your people shall be my people. So, but if you look here in verse 17, may you die, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. Pardon? I said, well, that's a biggie because yeah. even today, you know, be buried in the Jewish cemetery. Mm-hmm. Okay. But as I said, Ruth is refusing to leave Naomi. And again, she is, she is turning her life over to the God of Israel. And does that happen terribly often um, with uh, the uh, Canaanites and the Moabites? or any, does, does it happen too often? It's pretty rare. And you, Paul, did you have something? No. Okay. All right. You just had a quizzical look on your face there, and I said, I'm... I said, like that all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Well, Ruth knew she was, um, by sticking by Naomi, she knew she was going into a country where everybody was going to hate her. There was mm. a long history of hate and bloodshed between mm-hmm. the two peoples hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of mm-hmm. years and so she knew she was going into a place where she wouldn't be welcome okay. who, do the Moab, who do the Moabites descend from? no not his other son does the name Lot ring a bell? We know how that family came about. It was cursed from the beginning. It just, it just did not have a chance. But 
Again, here you have a stranger in a, from a strange land coming to God, and as we will see, God has has you know plans beyond that she has no idea are coming to her. But um, as said, going to chapter four, uh, Ruth needs what does Ruth need at this point? She needs redemption. Who said a husband? Well, yeah, she she does. She's going to get one. You're get we're get, you're getting close. But we're at the point where. Ruth needs to be redeemed. Um, and the person who, of course, does the redeeming is Boaz. And Boaz is not of the tribe of Ephraim, but which tribe? I don't know. Not Benjamin. Judah. Mm-hmm. But Boaz is of, the, is of the tribe of Judah. So... At any rate, uh, Ruth 11, verse 17, I think you had volunteered the last time, so let me. It's a lifetime commitment, people. (laughs) (laughs) Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in... Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tomar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Boaz, Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. And, pardon? Mm-hmm. Anything uh, jump out at anybody with, about this passage? She says, Naomi has a child. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The reference to Bethlehem. Looking at the uh, genealogy within, in there. Obed, Jesse, David. Where, what city is David from? He's from Bethlehem. Where, what is significant about Bethlehem? It's where Jesus is born. So 
We have a reference now to Bethlehem. Yes. Um, uh, one of my favorite parts of the story is just before uh, Boaz makes the deal with the elders, because Boaz was not the first in line to um, uh, get the land. That that was part of the redemption. Mm -hmm. uh, Naomi. Had a, had a claim to some land, but she needed a male relative to redeem it for her. Mm -hmm. And the first man in line said, no, 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 I don't want any part of this. My mm -hmm. wife won't like it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So he handed the right to redeem mm -hmm. over to Boaz. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, he missed out his chance to be one of the ancestors mm -hmm. of Jesus. Okay. You know. so, so, what is uh, Boaz's relationship to Naomi? You sure? Well, it says now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man named whose name was Boaz. But is she a blood relative? No, through marriage. But going back to what you had said, Naomi has a son. Naomi has a child now. So, but again, uh, it is Boaz of the, who is of Judah's lineage where we will see the significance of this. And again, Ruth is one of three women explicitly named in Matthew's genealogy. So... But at any rate, we've now come to David. We have, as I said, we have talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We are now going to get into the Davidic covenant here. Um, Ruth being David's great-grandmother. As I'm, I'm sure all of you are aware of who David is, um, if you were to just give a brief we did this last week with Jacob. Give me a one-word adjective to describe David. Anybody? There's no, there's no right or wrong answer here. Well, there probably is a wrong answer. Pardon? Man after God's own heart. Man after. Okay. Would faithful maybe be? Yes. Okay, faithful. What else? Passionate. Compassionate. Passionate. Okay, passionate. Charisma. Flawed. Very much so. Confident. Confident. Okay, warrior. So the war, what about courageous? Is David maybe the epitome of courage? Sometimes the truth. Okay. But one thing... Uh, when you read First uh, and Second Samuel, this is when I when I mentioned being a man of courage. Oftentimes throughout Scripture, you'll see where David is faced with conflict. Um, the prime example of this is when he ends up challenging Goliath. You'll notice again throughout Scripture, the men around David when they're faced with it with some with a great task or or something very just a tremendous undertaking, oftentimes the men around him tend to 
succumb to panic and fear. They become discombobulated. David never does. Uh, when he ends up challenging Goliath, even Saul becomes too fearful to act. But as I said, David has a tendency to realize when faced with a problem that those types of emotions are only going to hinder his ability to solve the problem at hand. He realizes that in a very rational and very cold manner. David focuses on the problem and only on the problem. And, but as, just to tee it up to where we are at this point in 2 Samuel, uh, Saul has fallen, he has plunged himself. Uh, David has been, is the new king, and he has had many, many victories already over the Philistines. And God is about to, before I get to that, I will make this one argument right now. This, this is my opinion here. When looking at these two genealogies, I would contend David is the linchpin in them for the following reasons. One, his legacy. I mean, there is probably no greater... You can always kind of debate this. You know, who's the greater fig, greatest figure in the Old Testament? You know, is it David? Is it Moses? Is it Abraham? The same way you can say, who's the greatest composer? Mozart, Beethoven, Bach. Who's the greatest president? Washington or Lincoln. But with respect uh, to Jesus' lineage, uh, I would contend David is, in fact, the linchpin. Um, again, he's Israel's greatest king. Um, his legacy, and again... Matthew has the genealogy going through Solomon. Luke has it going through Nathan. So here's where there's the first big split in this. But uh, going to uh, 2 Samuel here, uh, verses uh, 7 through uh, 12 through 16. Any volunteers? Does anybody want to read? Okay. Let me get over there, Judith, because we've been asked to record this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men and floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, wh whom I removed from you, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Thank you. When reading uh, this particular passage, um, Does anybody, is anybody maybe inclined to think that this is, that God is pro promising something strictly human here? I mean, not, I mean, it doesn't make much reference to a Messiah or anything of that nature, but is one inclined to think maybe that God is saying to David, your kingdom, your particular king, your reign will last forever? 
because when I've the few I've read this a few several times before, and I've always found myself wondering, where is you know the promise of you know how does this fit into uh, what people call God's covenant with David, to where you know his kingdom will last forever? We obviously later find out in the New Testament where what was where God was going with that, but. One thing that, let me, let me just throw this out here. God mentions that when whoever the heir is, they'll be punished when they sin. Does David fall? Does David, does David fall from grace? Yes. Very much so. After he has Uriah murdered, what happens? What does God say? He, he lets down several punishments. The the. The, first, the son that he and Bathsheba had is going to die. What else? He says, you will never know peace again. You, your nation will be at war from now until the day you die. You had an affair and you tried to keep it secret. Well, the same thing's going to happen to you, only it's going to be very public. But God said, you know, says, God, David is forgiven by God eventually, but the punishments stick in order to make sure that God's law and commandment is fulfilled. So, who follows David? Solomon does. Does Solomon fall? Does he slip up? Big time. How does he slip up? He allows the worship of all the foreign gods. He allows idol worship into Israel. He marries, he marries into the household of idol worshippers. So it just, the idol worship just spreads like a cancer all throughout Israel. So what is God's response on that? He divides the kingdom of Israel. He says to Solomon, I'm going to divide the kingdom. He says, You're, you will no longer be united. I'm going to give you this grace here and saying, I'm not going to divide it until you die. But after... Solomon, as said, you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom can never be put back together. It's they try, but it always fails. Um, who follows after Solomon? Rehoboam. Does Rehoboam fall from? Does he slip up? He can almost be counted on to make the wrong decision every single time. His judgment is so lacking. I mean. When he is told, don't do this, he does the opposite. So, yes, the prophecy is fulfilled many times, you know, but there's a bigger message. What is, what is the bigger message in this passage? Pardon? You need a Savior. Okay, what else? But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom put it away. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So whose throne are we talking here? Mm -hmm. So here is the, Davidic, the God's covenant with David. 
Any thoughts? Any questions? I know we've covered a lot today. I hope it's made sense. Well, I have a question. Okay. When Nathan delivered this message about your, your kingdom will last forever and the throne is established forever, did he... I figured David thought he meant this kingdom. Yes. And this throne. Yes. Didn't, I mean, I'm guessing. Oh, that's, that's why I was asking, does any... Is, interpreting the way we're interpreting. Mm-hmm. That's why I was asking, is it, is it easy to interpret that, this passage that way, saying your, king, your dynasty will last, your earthly dynasty will last forever? So when the kingdom split, pretty soon after Nathan said God says it'll last forever. Did the Jews think God had misinformed them? It'd be awfully easy to think that, but keep in mind, they, turned, they eventually turned away from God, so did it matter? Did they really care what God thought at that point? Well, maybe they didn't trust God when they thought um, that he had said the kingdom was going to last forever, and then it didn't. And mm-hmm. then they said, mm-hmm. "Why bother?" You know. Well, like I said, I'd, I'd be inclined to say, you know, "Here's God's word. I've turned my. I don't need it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to go my own way. So it, it doesn't matter." So I'm. So my. That's my question. Did they care at that point? What, whether or not they thought God had misled them? I mean, you've already. They've already turned their back on him. And as I said, it's not until Solomon, after Solomon's death just that the kingdom divides. But, yeah? I'm sorry. It's helpful, I think, to know that the promise to David occurs in two different forms. Okay. The absolute promise that the kingdom will not depart from you. But in 2 Kings chapter 2, when David gives the throne to Solomon, this is the way it is phrased. If your sons take her to their ways to walk before me in truth with all their hearts and their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So that's a conditional promise by God that if you're faithful, your, your earthly kingdom will continue. Mm-hmm. That, that promise was not kept. No. But God's promise was kept through Christ. Yes. Very... I, and what was that? Second Kings. Second Kings. After right before he. Two, beginning with verse four. Okay, right as he anoint Solomon. Well, as I said, Solomon's sons did not follow through with that, as as we're fully well aware. But at any rate, any thought? Any other thoughts? Oh, again, thank you all for allowing me to do this today, and. Let's close with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we are grateful for your many blessings. We are especially grateful for the salvation we have received through your Son and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose nativity we celebrate at this time. Be with us now as we go our separate ways and remind us that through your grace, We are constantly in your thoughts and that you have not, nor will you ever forsake us. For it is in your Son's holy and precious name we ask this in all things. Amen.